Hello. QueerAF is now an independent community interest company. Our podcast's first four seasons were funded by National Student Pride, and so there might be some old calls to action in them. For the most up-to-date info on our podcast that funds budding LGBTQIA plus audio producers, visit wearequeeraf.com and sign up for our free weekly newsletter that sums up the LGBTQIA plus world and supports queer creatives kickstart their career. Enjoy the show. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Today's episode features strong language and frank discussions about sex. If there are any young ears nearby, you might want to save this episode for later. If not, you're about to listen to someone who has stripped off her armour in the name of breaking a taboo by talking about the sex lives of trans and non-binary people. Welcome to Hashtag Queer AF. I'm Jamie Wareham. I literally did think that I would have the surgery, I'd wait six weeks, I'd go out, dress up, find someone with a big dick, you know, lay back, open my legs, and they would... Fuck away, I did. Juno Roche is a trans activist, writer, and now she has a queer AF vagina. Today, she joins our podcast to discuss her journey to getting it, which she details in her new book, Queer Sex. From surgery to overcoming any shortcomings a new vagina might have, Juno has found an empowerment in its inherent queerness. There is an intimate, silent conversation which goes on between my brain, my vagina, and my nagging self-doubt, which somehow results in me questioning my ability to feel desirable and to view myself as a sexual being. And a few years after vaginal landing, I feel that in order to change this particularly arid status quo, I have to stand up and admit to those around that I, Juno, am a vaginal virgin. In her book, Queer Sex, Juno takes off any armour she's built in years of trans activism to lay bare the truth about her sex life. The conflicting parts of my body, the penis and balls, never allowed me to lie back and think of England, or anywhere else for that matter. But they did make me want to run away and hide. They made me feel undesirable and unlovable. I knew I wanted surgery, not to change the whole of me, but to allow a more appropriate body image to engage with the world. The book is a series of interviews with trans and non-binary people, literally creating a conversation about queer sex. But it begins with Juno's story, which is exactly where we started, by talking about overcoming gender dysphoria and how that stopped being about chasing a binary and became about finding acceptance in her very trans body. I now have a vagina and a small, wide set of breasts that sit atop a wide rib cage and a belly. It's definitely a trans body and I love it for that. Accepting its trans qualities allows it to exist on one whole surface. Like a great etching, it presents different narratives within one encased environment. It took me years to get this beautiful trans body.
you know, I didn't know why, quite why I wanted to do the book. I suppose I was really sick of the ongoing narrative, which is really kind of heteronormative, which is also kind of classist in a way, because it relies on kind of getting to this perfect place, which comes at a very expensive surgery. But I knew in terms of doing it that I would have to, I wanted to interview people, because I didn't just want it to be me banging on about my stuff. I wanted to own how crap I was at stuff and then go and find people that I thought might be doing a much better job of it. But I thought, OK, I'm going to ask them really, really kind of personal questions. I need to, otherwise there's no point in doing this. I didn't really want it to be a guide, but what I did want it to be was a big kind of exploration of what we're doing and what we're getting up to, which is never talked about. We're only talked about in terms of cis people, in terms of, you know, getting ourselves like a cis boyfriend who's... But I thought in order to do all of that stuff, I need to be, from the get-go, I need to be completely open about my stuff. I think that if you're going to ask other people to be vulnerable, even readers, because reading my stuff is kind of, in a way, or showing interest in my, even my articles, kind of makes you, ties you into it, mm. it you know, in a, maybe in a, like a slightly vulnerable way. Yeah. And yeah. I felt like I have to be the vulnerable one. Can you tell us a little bit about <clears throat> that story that you tell, just for the, for the, for the listeners who haven't read the book? You know, like I, like every other trans person, has spent an enormous amount of uh, my life thinking that surgeries would be the kind of resolving factor that I would have surgery and then everything would fall into place. You know, before surgery, I'd really slept mainly with men. So for me, it was really important that I'd kind of spent many years, and I was eight, because I've been HIV for kind of 20 plus years now. So for the first 10 years of trying to transition, I was turned or told that I couldn't have surgery, because that's what they used to say back then. You couldn't get dentists, you couldn't have elective surgery. I was really surprised in the way you described it in the book, that you had this level of understanding, like you, you, the way you, you said, I, and, I, and I understood that. And I was quite surprised about that, actually. What, that I understood them turning me... Well, that was just the age that we lived in. Yeah. I mean, it was such a stigmatising... You know, when I was first of all diagnosed, I was told it was pre-drugs. So the only drugs that were around were kind of AZT, kind of very simple things. I was told I would have six months to live. And literally, I was given a piece of paper called a DS-1500, which is, uh, entitled me to death benefits. So it said, it literally said, this person is not expected to live more than six months. So you could get all this. I mean, it was ridiculous, really. I just started at university. So in a way, I understood, because that was the time we lived in. You know, and if you lived through it, there was no, there's no point in... You know, you can't demonise people continually. At that point in time, no one knew. You know, one of the first people I'd ever slept with, I remember going to a club and seeing them in the club this is in the late 80s, yeah. and they obviously had full-blown AIDS. And I remember thinking, God, look at us all. That's my friend. But we're, we're all of us here, we're keeping a distance. Because that was the time. People didn't want... You know, this was an incurable disease back then. So I'm not going to look back and kind of be annoyed at people for kicking me back for 10 years and saying, no, you can't have surgery. Uh. Um, and to, uh, you, know, just, you know, everything happens at the, when it needs to happen. It's like, yeah. you know, it's like having a party. The right people are always in the room. It might not be the people that you thought were going to be in the room, but the right people will always be there. So yeah. in that um, sense... Yeah, and, and, and that's where the book starts, isn't <coughs> it? You know, when the right moment finally did happen. I think, yeah, absolutely. But weirdly, like everything that I imagined the right moment was going to be, it wasn't. I mean, it was so weird. It was like, my, I remember my, and like I'd done art and philosophy. So I'd always been very kind of philosophical. And so when my surgeon said to me, 
on the way down to surgery, <coughs> don't worry, I'll make you look as real as... I just thought, fuck no, what does it mean? If I look real, it just means I'm not real. <laughs> you know, I can't, I can't live with that kind of... And it was weird when I woke up, I realised that for me, and this is just for, this is about my journey, for me I realised that I didn't have a vagina, I had something else that was about change and fluidity and it was about taking what I'd had before and upcycling it and making it into something ultimately much better. And that in a way that was really shocking to me because I hadn't expected any of that kind of train of thought to happen. I literally did think that I would have the surgery, I'd wait six weeks, I'd go out, dress up, find someone with a big dick, you know, lay back, open my legs and they would fuck away. I did. <laughs> and so after surgery, that seemed like the last thing I wanted. I had all this kind of, this kind of layered, you know, just thoughts about who I was and what I was and what this meant. What did it mean now that I had this thing between my legs that I'd imagined was going to be a vagina, but it wasn't. So it's like a cave. Um, it has all kind of different, you know, things. And yeah, I was being told I couldn't celebrate that. In a way, like, my vagina was like as queer as fuck. And you know, that's where all my queerness kind of resided and came from. So in that sense, you know, everything was blown apart by that. And, and then in that kind of moment, I suppose I realised that <clears throat> as trans people, we're kind of told or taught, you know, we're not told it, you know, it's all kind of subliminal stuff, but we're kind of told that we should move through trans really quickly to look as much like them as we possibly can and be like them and hope that no one notices and pass and blend. And in a way, I suppose, I didn't want to. Politically, something kicked in after my surgery. And I thought, no, I really want to just, I'm just trans. You know, you don't need to say that I'm a trans woman or that I'm a woman. For me, I'm just trans, and trans is more than enough. It's a fabulous kind of, um, you know, demonstration of being alive, so. The way you describe visualising a vagina before you have one, it described to me gender dysphoria in a way, in such a vivid way, that I think more people would understand it than any other description yeah. of gender dysphoria. And I wondered to myself, why <coughs> haven't I heard this before? When I started writing, some of my kind of fiercest critics were trans women who would say to me, how can you talk about it like that? You're kind of destroying the mystery or the mystique. And, you know, because when I transitioned, you know, it was like people, I'd see people would write things and they'd write things like, Oh, my doctor sent me for a cervical smear because they don't know. And I just think you don't, we don't need that. But we do, we do have prostates, so we do need to get those checked. And you do need to kind of own your body. You can't, you know, you can't, I don't want this to be a fantasy. You know, it's like I'm 25 years, I've lived longer than 25, you know, than, than they said I would do. I, these years have to be real years. So I think that for me, it's really, you know, like, if I have a place in terms of my writing, it's to tell a kind of honest truth, which I think will create more space for people. You know, by my kind of reckoning, I think that probably only about 10 to 20% of all trans people can afford to have all that surgery done. So that means that there'll be an awful lot of trans women in countries who will always have a dick, and there'll be a lot of trans men who will always have a vagina. I'm not gonna demonize them. You know, it's like that, that's a fact of life. And in a way, we have to kind of like work with that. I've always said to people, if you can't accept a trans woman with a dick, then you don't accept us. So don't say that you're a trans ally and then say to me, have you had surgery? Because you're not being a trans ally. That's not, you know, allyship. Like probably one of the ways I think I can explain it best is that 
I, so I always felt like I wanted to be a mother. That was my kind of big thing. So that was one of the things I realised after surgeries. I just thought, oh, you know, it's like it, I've just, it kind of hit me that it had like a back wall and it didn't go anywhere, so it couldn't lead to it. So I could never have a baby. You know, I understand stupid, but for years and years, I would walk down the street and I'd see couples pushing a pram and I'd think, oh, and I'd stare. And sometimes I could see them look at me and think, why is that person staring? You know, but they would never think, why is that woman staring because she hasn't got children? They would never think that. And it was like, I wanted to scream and say to them, no, I just want a child. You know, it's like, I want to be a mum. It's like, and people didn't see you. So it's kind of like the whole world interprets you in a way that you, is so foreign to you. Like when I was a kid, uh, when I was at uh, primary school, I, um, the boys called me a pansy. And I thought that they were calling me Pansy, so I loved the name. So I got like the whole school to call me Pansy, <clears throat> including my teacher, who allowed me. She said that she would call me Pansy in carpet time, which was like story time, which is where I'm sure my love of writing comes from. Because <laughs> on the carpet, Pansy off the carpet, not Pansy. So that, the, my natural way of being was to be like that, was to be Pansy. It felt right, it felt comfortable, it felt free, it felt like I could aspire, I could have dreams about becoming whatever it was I wanted to become. And then the world said to me, I know that's not who you are, you have to, you're a boy and you have to be this. So I had to learn, the only kind of thing that I, the only transition I've ever done in my life was to try and transition to be a, a boy, really. You know, so it was very, you know, it's, it's so difficult. It's like you take all of you and you try and put it <clears throat> into this shape for the rest of the world and you spend your whole time going, is this okay? Am I doing all right? You know, and it's only been in recent years I've kind of gone, you know, no, I'm trans. That's my identity now. I, you know, it's almost away from gender. For me, in a way, it's this kind of other thing. It's about change. It's about, I'm, I'm, you know, trans means being able to change and having the courage to change and to, and to ignore all the kind of gender stuff and the binary stuff and just say, well, <clears throat> I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a queer femme is how I describe myself now, rather than, you know, as being a, a, a trans woman or a woman. I'm not interested in any of that because actually a lot of that stinks anyway. Coming up after the break, going from wanting acceptance to finding it in herself. Stay tuned to Hashtag Queer AF, the National Student Pride podcast. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. 
Welcome back to Hashtag QueerAF, made to keep the pride of conversation that is National Student Pride a year-round discussion. When anyone talks about how they feel about their body, it's often defined by metrics. Whether that's the side of your biceps, how many pounds you've lost, or even how many calories you've ate. And for trans people, those metrics can be even more intimate, whether about genitals, feminization surgery, or a whole host of other desired physical metrics. And for a long time, our guest today, Juno, chased the vagina metric, which was all about feeling, quote unquote, proper. Because trans was seen as a kind of, as like a room that you walked through on the way to being proper. And proper was to be, you know, both sides of the room are binary genders. <clears throat> and trans was a kind of transitionary kind of period. No one ever said that you could just stay being trans. It's starting to change a bit now. But I mean, I think that Definitely, there was a sense of all the stuff that you should and shouldn't do that would be, that would make you more acceptable to society. So hair removal. And it's weird really, because I've always, I thought for a long time now, what they should do is say, listen, here's your pot of money to adapt and change your body. And you do with it what you want to do with it. So if you want to just spend 13,000 on cheekbones, do it. If you want to get a vagina or a cock, do that. Or if you want to just get really big tits, do that. You know, do what it is that you need to do to feel comfortable in the way that you display your, you know, your gendered identity, however you see it. You know, that seems like a much kinder thing because it still is that thing about what some... So, like, people don't know this, but, you know, electrolysis is so expensive. It costs thousands. But, you know, that's not paid for by the NHS. But there's no more visual thing. Then, so if I've got friends who just see themselves as just being women, you know, they're not even trans women, just women, and they struggle with hair on their face. There's no more kind of painful thing than, than having hair, facial hair. I mean, I don't give a fuck anymore, quite frankly, <laughs> about any of it, but I mean, it matters to people and it's very unkind. And also it's a kind of, it's a, it's, it's a lie because it kind of posits that women and men are just one thing we buy into something which actually is kind of degrading society continually. Yeah. So well, something that you <clears throat> actually refer to a lot is fluidity, but in the way you write about it is it's almost, it's not like a new thing to you, but it is something that feels like a new path that you start to go on throughout the book. Is that? I think fair? so. I, yeah, I think for me it was like it was the only way that I could then understand my own body mm. because I, you know, I was part of the system. I was part of that kind of binary system. I'd played the game to get surgery. I'd kind of said all the right stuff. When they asked me about my underwear, I said, oh, it's sexy, and you know, of course it's sexy. When they said to me about, you know, because the, they, they focus, when you have surgery, they really focus on your depth, how much depth you're gonna have. So, you know, as soon as they take the packing out five days afterwards, they shove a speculum in you and tell you what depth you... I mean, it's so weird. <laughs> I, felt like a, I felt like a dairy cow that was being inspected for kind of pregnancy. And they do that to everyone in the... So everyone in the board knows their depth. It's like a badge. I'm like, I miss three inches. Yeah. It's like... So there's... God, a, size matters everywhere, then. Yes. Yeah. And, but, you know, it's like, it's so weird. It's, so it's such a... And it's so weird because... Our vaginas have no sensation in them, the actual physical vaginas. So actually, it's just all about somebody else. So that whole thing, that whole misogynistic kind of giving you of your depth, is just all about someone else. It's got nothing to do with you because actually, 
somebody could pound away in there for a year and a day and I'm not going to feel a wrong thing unless they can find some other kind of G-spots. <laughs> you know, I'm not. That's the truth of it. So it's, it's, you know, it's a kind of... I suppose I wanted to create, in writing the book and doing all the stuff I do, I just want to create some real space. Because actually, it's fun. You know, I'm like I'm older. I've had lots of nice dicks, so I'm like I'm not dick short. And you know, and it's like I'm prepared to explore and do other. You know, and I really find trans men and trans masculine people really attractive now. You know, but I don't know that I'll ever have another orgasm, like an earth-shattering, good old kind of spurting orgasm. And that's fine, but it wouldn't be fine if somebody was 23. Mm. A 23-year-old needs orgasms. They do. They can't spend their life just going, well, I've got this thing that is a vagina and it's got good depth, but fuck, I can't feel anything. It's not good enough. We're only going to change the system by really ramming at the door. And I suppose that's what I think my writing does. And I suppose people get a bit pissed with me because I'm kind of, maybe I'm doing that a bit early because we haven't won all the kind of stuff. But And this is exactly what I wanted to ask, actually, <coughs> because what is so great about this book is the frankness of it. The language you use in it is very clear. It's to the point. It's the kind of sexy talk that you would expect sex talk to be like. Yeah. But I think you're right, there are definitely going to be critics out there that say, we shouldn't be talking about these things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. How do you counter that? Uh, you know, I'm, it's not my place to be kind of liked or disliked or, you know, I'm not seeking approval. I genuinely think I've lived my life under the kind of kibosh of um, HIV stigma. I know what it's like for people to try and take away space. You know, I like, I really do genuinely care about kind of fighting the good fight to create space for somebody who doesn't, hasn't even, doesn't even know that they're trans or does know but hasn't got the words for it yet. Maybe they're, they're 12 or 17 or maybe they're 70. And I want them to kind of have a bit more space so that they can think, you know, I don't have to do that. If I want to spend, I've got a bit of money and if I want to spend that all on hair removal, I can. And I think about vagina somewhere down the line or if I just want to have a vagina, that's fine. Mm. It's not about, you know, I don't want to, change the dynamic. I just want to bring in some more space. And why is it important to have that conversation about how trans people have sex? Because that's what your book is about. It's about opening that conversation up. Because what's happened before is that we've only been seen as successful if we've got a cis partner. You know, that's the deal of it. People would say to me all the time, and people still do say to me, oh, it's good you pass. And I go, I don't fucking want to pass. You know, that's why I write about it all over the place. <laughs> I don't want to pass. You know, it's like it's, it's uh, passing for who? You know, I want to be seen as trans. I think that, you know, so we've not been allowed to have conversations around sex on our own terms. We've only been allowed to have those conversations if at one point we reference a non-trans partner. You know, and it's so ludicrous. I remember thinking, well, what were like, so after surgery, I remember thinking, God, well, what's, you know, my tits are kind of small and wide set apart, so that's a gonna giveaway. Uh, you know, I don't have like a, a waist in it, then that's a bit of a giveaway. So my, I've definitely got like a trans body, naked. It's nice, but it's trans, mm. definitely trans. And, you know, and it felt like, I don't wanna kind of run away from that. I wanna talk about that and explore it and talk about how sexy that can be, how sexy would it be to go to bed with somebody and not know if they've got a, 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 a cock, be it grown or non-grown, you know, or, or how sexy would it be to, to not be that genital focused, to, to kind of be and free of that. And a big part of your book, the core of it is where you go out and interview trans and non-binary people. <clears throat> and that's all about having those conversations. And it's, and it's really nice the way you were able to read it and you kind of get this like ear on a conversation, which is very much like a podcast, like yeah, I'm listening to right now. Yeah. But can you tell me and our listeners about the non-binary self-pleasure group? Because you took a lot away from that. 
I did. It was like, it was a weird thing. So it was my last interview and I didn't know any of them. But the people in the non-binary self-pleasure, I literally didn't know them at all. And also I didn't actually know that they did this kind of wanks. I didn't know that they got together and wanked together. Say, explain what happened. So I kind of like, so I get down there, so I go to, so I always travel to people so they don't have to do it. And it's always in their surroundings that they feel comfortable in. So I arrive in this house and we're sitting, this beautiful view over the Sussex down and two budgies in a cage, which is squawking kind of madly. <laughs> so, um, and then we sit down and then they all know each other. Well, I kind of get, got that they knew each other, but I didn't know that they wanked together. So then we sit down and it becomes really clear that that's what, and I think, God, this is like the queerest interview I'm doing and it's the last one. And it's challenging me, because you know, I'm not sure that I'm that, able to kind of to wank in front of other people. I mean, I've done it in the past, but I've been, been paid for it a long time ago. But I mean, recently, I'm not sure that it's kind of... So um, it was amazing, really, because it was just about this space of people having bodies that they described as being grown and non-grown, and bodies that didn't, that were, were beyond kind of uh, binary explanation in a way. It taught me an awful lot. And it taught me a lot about safe spaces about the kinds of spaces that trans people, it doesn't mean that everyone has to sit in a room and wank together, but it does mean that we can try and create this really inclusive space that's not kind of hierarchical in terms of these people have kind of are successful. You know, still the unemployment rate for trans people is ridiculously high mm -hmm. if they don't conform to a kind of stereotype or if they're getting it wrong. You see people going, oh, they're trying too hard or they're not trying hard enough. Or, you know, are you going to wear more makeup? Are you going to do this stuff? So to end the book with this completely brilliant set of people who were really striving to be kind of brave and set news. I mean, I said to them, I said to them, we somehow need to get this into the system because mm. this kind of level of kind of body in, in kind of embodiment in a way and being really in your body and understanding it and, and accepting it and loving it in the way it yeah. is and finding it is so important because so much of trans stuff is about shame. Mm. You're not good enough, you're not slim enough, you know, you're not tall enough if you're a trans man or if you're a trans woman, you're too tall or you're, you know, it's just all shaming. Even when somebody might say to me, oh, it's fine for you because you're small and you pass, there's no compliment in that. Yeah, like, and you actually, you took some really clear takeaways. I remember <coughs> like one of the things you, you write about was, you know, why didn't the NHS tell me about the soft dildo? Why did they tell me to go and dilate? You know, like, and I was, yeah, what, what are the other takeaways that, are, that for you were really clear? Like, what? Well, I think, that, I think for me that, that you know, just uh, that whole thing, why, why would doctors, so the doctors do this really weird thing. So after surgery, your vagina is at its most copious mm -hmm. because it's not started to heal yet. So it's kind of baggy. It's like a carrier bag, essentially. You know, it's had lots of packing in it. So they come along and they tell you how, you know, if you're interested in depth, they tell you your depth when it's at its kind of biggest mm. in a way. And, you know, why do they do that? Why don't they just, why don't they just not do that? Why don't they just kind of give you some advice about how to dilate or, or you know, how to do that? Why do they treat us in such a misogynistic kind of sexist way? Why don't they tell us about dilators? Because the dilators are horrible. They're these hard, rigid, plastic things. And you feel the, the number of women that I've spoken to, or trans women that I've spoken to, who just say that they feel like they're failing because mm. they can't do it. Whereas, get a nice, soft, spongy vibrator. 
you know, and play around and don't feel like you've got to put it in and keep it in there for 45 minutes and go through the pain barrier. You know, treat it like it's kind of a sexy thing to do. I just, I've just started to talk to somebody that's a design student, actually, because I really want to design <laughs> a set of stuff for trans people. Because you're given these things, and they really are. It's like it's just purely medical. I can imagine. I can imagine, like, the NHS creating what is essentially a dildo and just completely ruining it. Because that's essentially yeah. what happens, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's, it's hard, clear plastic. Yeah. And there are two of them, one that's smaller, one that's bigger. And most, you know, so many people struggle with a big one because there's no give in it. And even if you really want a cock inside you, a cock has give in it. It's mm. got, it's kind of fleshy and it's got give. And you know, it's of different sizes and it goes soft. Well, this dilator's not gonna do any of that. Yeah. You know, and then I find it afterwards that they can have ones where that you put inside and you pump it up, which would be really kind, but they don't do that because apparently it's too expensive. So after the book, my kind of big takeaways were, actually we need to change the system. We have a duty of care to change the system for kind of younger people come so they can, because if you think about that kind of level of failing or feeling like you're failing, you know, your dysphoria is not going to go away. Yeah, and there's lots of practical advice in the book, which I obviously don't want to completely read out, but I would wonder if you would just give us one piece of really practical advice for that 23-year-old out there. Like, and, and, and particularly because I think right in the beginning of the introduction, you kind of have, there's a few questions that you want to ask and you're not sure whether you're like, like the things Questions like, do you have to tell someone if you're trans? Like, do I have to tell them if the construction of my vagina is different? All of those kind of questions you ask in the intro. Yeah. Is there any of those that you would pick out okay. and say, this is my one piece of advice? Yeah, the, the, the one piece of advice I would give to, you know, that you, as you are today, you are enough. And you're more than enough today. And if you choose to, if that's, if you know, if this is how you choose to present, if you choose to not have anything done, that doesn't, that doesn't take away from your femininity. It doesn't take away from your masculinity. It doesn't take away from your non-binariness. If you want to stand completely still, and in a way learn to be proud of yourself standing still today, and anything you choose to do, you choose to do it for you, not for them out there. You're enough as you are. What I find incredible about Juno is in order to deliver this book with the authenticity that real, good and fulfilling sex needs, Juno has removed all of her armour, leaving her completely vulnerable. Vulnerable to critics, even within the LGBTI community, who might feel like it's too soon to have this conversation. As well as, of course, the cruel eyes of those outside, who could use this entire book to ridicule her. But she's very aware of this choice. And in fact, it's an incredibly powerful, and very queer piece of activism. Being vulnerable is the mo- is the only empowering thing to do. And I'm not, talk- you know, not in terms of powerful, but empowering. So being vulnerable is empowering. And so for me, it's like the greatest freedom in a way. You know, like I, I definitely feel much more empowered and much more present than lots of people I know because, because I don't have that. There's no kind of bullshitty, and in a way, the only way that other people are going to really understand us is by us being vulnerable. That's it for this week's Hashtag Queer AF. Next week, our final episode of Season 2. We have the audio from our Digital Pride live podcast recording last week with BBC presenter and National Student Pride Ambassador. The pride of conversation is the whole reason that we make this podcast. Yes, Evan Davis is back, and this time he's the guest, not the presenter of this show. 
Make sure you're subscribed and you're rating and reviewing us on iTunes in the meantime. This week's production and presenting comes from me, Jamie Worm, and with a huge thanks to Juno Roche, you can get her book, Queer Sex, A Trans and Non-Binary Guide to Intimacy, Pleasure and Relationships now. We can confirm it's hashtag queer AF. And hey, so are you. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.